God, I thank you for the opportunity to uh, still be able to meet in a, you know, uh, sort of accessible way. God, this is so much more than churches could do 100 years ago or even, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for, you know, silly banter and being able to come before you uh, to hear your word and to worship you, God. Um, Lord, I just pray for a lot of healing um, right now in the nation. Um, this is a weird spot to be in. It seems like uh, this is the year where uh, the saying, if it rains, it pours, would probably have found its origin if it wasn't already a phrase. Um, God, I, I know that there's still so much um, fear and uh, genuine uh, threats with the virus that is just um, hitting our world super hard. And then lately with everything that we're seeing in terms of uh, riots and protests and, and racial divides, God, it's, it's, a, it's a frustrating thing for, for me to experience. It's a frustrating thing for me to try to be in the midst of. And I just pray that you give so much guidance and so much strength and so much courage to your church, um, not just to speak, but I think at this point to really um, make an effort to listen, to, uh, to make an effort to listen to those like my father who, are, who laments because he experienced racism and this type of oppression and this type of distrust of authorities back when he was living in Louisiana in the 50s and 60s and still has to experience that today as he sees the people of his own skin color continue to be hurt and continue to be killed and continue to see innocent blood being shed it's a frustrating thing, God, I, I can only imagine. Um, and so uh, we, we do pray for justice. We know that you are a God of great justice. Um, and we, we can trust that you will, beyond what all of our um, devices here on earth could do, that you will see that things are, are uh, made right. It's, uh, I, I reflect on my, my, me, my conversation with Andy earlier this week, God, where we talked about um, how the thing that we can trust in is that one of two things will happen for all, all people who are, who are wrongdoers, which is all of us, but even the, the, the vicious, the, the harmful and the oppressive is that either they will experience that judgment themselves when the day comes for them or that the judgment that they deserved will fall on our savior just as ours did. And so, of course, God, we pray for, you know, the gospel to, to, reign, to reign true and to be able to cleanse people of their sins and for the evil that they've committed, just as we have come to you with that, with that submission and that confession. But we know, God, that you are just, and we know that you will punish the evildoer in the right time. And we, in a weird way, we find comfort in that, we find solace in that. And so, God, I pray that as the church, we would be able to listen, we would be able to speak words of truth and words of healing, and we would pray for healing consistently. God, I pray that as this social media craze and as the trend of all of this just dies down, we would continue to recognize the plight of people who may not look like us, the, the, the struggle that they have to deal with living in a world that oftentimes doesn't know how to respond to them. Um, I pray that we would be able to continue to listen to the people who are a part of these oppressed and marginalized communities, because that is so much of Christ's mission. That is so much of what Christ did when he spoke to those who the community did not speak to or looked down upon. Um, 
but we also pray for peace. We pray that, that we, we, we can look at scripture and see several instances where there were riots and mobs and none, none of these times that they accomplished godly means. We do want to be able to empathize and understand uh, the plight of those who are rioting, but we also want to be able to say that violence and this, this type of, these types of things are, are not good they're not beneficial and they are not godly. They're not what you would want, God. So we pray that there would be a peace there. Um, I don't know, God, there's so much. Uh, but Lord, we know that you are good. We know that you are in control. We pray that, uh, that, there, is a, that there is a gospel that, that can redeem and make right all of these things. Um, I was thinking earlier of a conversation I had with my dad, like I said, where he was just lamenting all of this and lamenting a nation that continues to not know what to do with this melting pot model. But I think of a kingdom that we know of that Jesus preached about where nations would be able to live and love each other in harmony because they are united by the God who has called them and restored them to it. We know, that, we know that there is a time coming when people from different cultures, different languages, different customs can love each other. And we know that we can see that that time is not today, but we trust that that time would be one day. We know that time is coming and we anticipate that. So may that be a hope that we as believers can cling to and may that be a hope that is enticing and that can melt away the, uh, the resistance in those who don't know you yet. So God, we just come to you humbly and pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, our scripture to open us is simply Second uh, Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Jesus Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Spirit, come make us humble. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in, in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right. We are taking a break uh, to walk through the Psalms for the summer. And this, uh, this week, we begin right where the Psalter uh, begins with Psalm 1. And I just want to tell you a few things about um, this book of Psalms and then this Psalm in particular before we jump into it. But the, the Psalter is the book of the song book of ancient Israel uh, compiled over many years, uh, utilizing the songs of many authors, uh, many by King David, perhaps uh, Ezra, this great scribe compiled the book. Uh, these Psalms all have differing uh, purposes. They were composed at different times for different uses. A great way to use the Psalter is to understand uh, the themes of the Psalms and to take one and to meditate on it for a while, um, perhaps over and over again, and to really internalize it 
uh, deeply. One of my favorite things that I was able to do last year uh, when I was on a silent retreat was to memorize a psalm, and I would really recommend uh, doing something like that. A few key facts about this first psalm is that it is uh, setting the tone for the whole Psalter. It was chosen to, uh, to stand at the beginning uh, for a reason. Uh, some scholars even believe that maybe it was placed at this uh, point to set the tone for the entire third portion of the Old Testament. So it's a very important psalm. It's simple in, in many ways. The writer uses a few devices, the use of parallelism, uh, repetition, and uh, something we'd call amplification. And he really makes a distinction between two groups of people, uh, the righteous and the wicked. And one thing you'll notice is there is no middle ground. There aren't the righteous and the wicked and then the pretty good people in the middle. Um, it is either the righteous or the wicked, which all, also is true in the teachings of Jesus, by the way. If you really dig into the teachings of Jesus, you'll, you'll find the same Thing. So in case you're more uh, comfortable with Jesus than the Old Testament, um, just remember Jesus quoted the Psalms uh, more than anything else. And this was uh, definitely the way he viewed things as well. And so an, an uncomfortable thing that can happen when Christians read a Psalm like this is uh, we, we can read it and say, well, what about, you know, what about Paul and Romans saying that no one is righteous? No, not one. How in the world could uh, a Psalm declare that anybody is righteous? And of course, Paul and Romans got that very idea from Psalm 14. Um, and so the Psalms themselves testify that no one is in and of themselves righteous. The only way that you're included um, in the title of the righteous in the Old Testament and of the Psalms is to be a part of God's people. And clearly in the Bible, those people weren't righteous because of their behavior, because of their devotion to God. They were made righteous by God's providing of sacrificial systems through the temple and such things. And then in the New Testament, they're made righteous by the perfect high priest and the ultimate sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ. So when the writer of the psalm uh, calls people righteous, he doesn't say that they are the righteous because they have lived perfectly, but because they have been declared righteous and are being changed and shaped into being more and more um, godly and righteous because of the work of God. So um, observe how the writer of this psalm describes the righteous. He, he shows three times what they do. This is the repetition. Um, and he shows then three times how they prosper, and then three things that describe the wicked. But the righteous by far get the most airtime because the psalm is a hopeful psalm. It calls you to delight in the law of the Lord and to set your mind on the law of the Lord. And, and the law of the Lord is a key thing to unpack here in this psalm because the law of the Lord, um, some of you might think of the Ten Commandments or something like that, that this word for law means all of the teachings. And so that means uh, this is the history, this is the commandments, this is all of the, of the ways that those commandments are applied to us. It's the teachings of the Lord. Um, and this psalm calls us to actively uh, think about those things uh, to meditate on them, and to be transformed by them. So God's people, who he calls righteous, um, become increasingly transformed in that they 
obey and follow and listen and apply the teachings um, of God. So I want to work out uh, something from each of the three sections of this psalm for us uh, to understand and for us to apply in our microchurches. Um, so the first section, uh, and I, I'm going to call this what the righteous person does and doesn't do now. So uh, Psalm 1-1 says, blessed is the man, and blessed is, is another word for happy. Um, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. I want you to notice the combination of the three, th three things, walk, sit, and stand. And I think this is a way of saying um, in everything that you do, the, the righteous person in all that they do um, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And, and what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in the counsel of the wicked? Um, I love to take extended walks with people. I've taken walks with many of you. And, and what do we do on those walks? Uh, we, we influence each other. Um, we share ideas. We, we work things out. I've yet to take a silent walk with any of you in which there was no uh, idea or thinking shared. You know, before podcasts and print media, those you walked with, uh, you walked with for hours and hours. And those were the ones whose voices sank in the deepest. So if you examine the sources that influence you, that's who you walk with. Who are they? What people in person, what people through media, who do you walk with? Who, whose voice sinks in the deepest with you? It says, blessed or happy are those who don't stand in the way of sinners. I think that means um, when, when you stand uh, in the way of someone, I believe it, it means that you set yourself up to be influenced by this person. In antiquity, imagine you stand kind of next to the marketplace on a regular basis and you discover the same people travel by and stop to chat every day. At some point, if you continue to go stand there, you're welcoming their input um, in your life, their influence in your life. Maybe you don't walk with them, but you hear them out when they come by and you don't protect your heart from what they have to say. In fact, you uh, actively engage and you stay. My parents used to have a neighbor who'd stand outside of his uh, mobile home all the time. And my dad would get caught in these uh, hyper-political complain fests uh, every time he got out of his car when he got home from work. He would get out of his car and, and there the neighbor would be and and he would kind of be holding his lunchbox, uh, standing on the steps, uh, having this, this conversation. He'd stand with him and, and talk. But my mom uh, wasn't a fan of this. In fact, she'd come out and announce that dinner was ready, whether it was or not, uh, just to get my dad out of this conversation. But if my mom came home, uh, she would not stand around uh, to have a conversation with this guy. She would get out of the car, march right up the steps and into the house. She didn't um, stand and be influenced by him. She, she chose not to do that. Blessed or happy is the person that said who doesn't sit in the scoffer's seat. And what is that? It, it could mean a couple things. Uh, to sit in the seat of a scoffer may be to settle into their company and openly accept their viewpoint again for long periods of time. Or it may mean, and this would dif differentiate it a little more, because um, the word seat often meant to take a position. Um, it may have meant to make the types of judgments that those people that influence you make to, to begin to take their position and to execute similar types of thinking based on the premises that they hold and, and under which you've been influenced. Because you see our thinking and decisions and, our, and then our actions flow from 
our conclusions, our premises, whether we know that we have them or not. The happy or blessed person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. So what do they do? They delight, it says, in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. As I said, the law of the Lord is the teachings of the Lord. So you would, you would say uh, when the psalm was written, the entire Old Testament, uh, and then the teachings of Jesus that clarify and continue forward uh, the teachings of the Old Testament to us would be just um, as accurately called the law of the Lord. To meditate on them is to think about them regularly and continually, to insert them into your mind to shape how you think. Uh, meditation in, in Eastern uh, religion would be to clear your mind. Meditation in the Bible is the exact opposite in which you would fill your mind as often as possible uh, with the law or the teachings of God. So here are my questions for you in your microchurches. When you're tempted to walk or stand or sit in places that lead you astray, where are you? And I want you to be as honest as you can with that. Do any of those need examination? What would it take, second question, for this idea of day and night meditation to become more true for you starting this week? I really want to encourage you, don't, don't be too theoretical with this. I mean, if you had to say, I'm going into a new week, I'm starting on uh, Monday, I'm back to some rhythms, what, what could you do to maybe re-engage with that idea of meditating on the law tomorrow? Let's, uh, let's get really, really practical. The second section here is what I would call the effects of the righteous, righteous person's choices on their life, um, as opposed to those of the wicked. Here's uh, more of our scripture. The, the righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. You know, you must be familiar with this imagery. I, I just took a walk around the neighborhood by the church and uh, the arroyo that runs through the neighborhood is a living image of this. There, even though there's not active water in the arroyo, there's this strip of greenery that cuts right through the neighborhood. Um, if you've ever driven down to Bisbee um, and you, you encounter the San Pedro River from a distance, you see this strip of tall cottonwood trees in the middle of a desert um, in which you see these green, healthy, tall uh, trees that are, are drinking from the water table. Uh, and are, are healthy and they stand out. They are a marked difference from the, the landscape around them. They're recognizable. And the scriptures say the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. And when you hear chaff, think of uh, something you could think of as sunflower seeds. You know, when you take the sunflower seed and you crack it in your mouth, you eat the, uh, the edible part, and then you, you spit out a shell. Uh, uh, the shell of a seed could be called chaff. It's uh, disposable. It's inedible. Um, it's useless. Or coffee beans, uh, the dried skin left over after roasting. If you're, if you're into that, you don't want to partake of that. It's, it's a waste. It's something to be uh, disposed of. It's the useless part. It's, it's undigestible. So what does that mean in regard to people? Of course, uh, seeds and coffee beans are things we love and enjoy, and this speaks to the value of human life, but to become like chaff is to disintegrate, to become less and less human, less healthy, less vibrant, less alive, less a gift to others. And in your microchurches, I want you to think about this. Maybe tell a story 
to each other of a time in which God has prospered you and, and yielded fruit from your life and caused you to grow like a tree by a stream, a time you could recognize that you were drawing from his presence in your life, from his sustaining grace, and that it caused you to be a blessing and it caused you to stand out and it caused you to be recognizable as one of his people because you drank deeply from, from his grace. And then tell a story, if you can, of someone you've known that is disintegrated, who's driv- been driven away, that sin has taken root in their heart, and where you saw a person who had beautiful, wonderful things to offer, who began to lose their vibrancy and their life and become less of a gift to others. You don't need to name this person, but, but consider this. We need to tell these stories because this is what happens to people. This is what the psalm is teaching us about. Section three, I would call the judgment to come and it's bearing on this life now. And here's the hard part. It doesn't always feel like things are working like this, right? This scripture promises that the righteous, the righteous flourish and wicked people um, are, are blown away like chaff, but often it feels like the righteous don't flourish and wicked people often seem to get away with it and to be getting, you know, they seem to be winning at times. I have to tell you the the moment I first saw the clip of that officer smirking, pressing his kneecap into George Floyd's neck and watching the moment when George Floyd stopped breathing, it sure didn't seem like the wicked are being blown away. I'd encourage you, by the way, if you haven't watched every second of that video, you should. It will make you sick, or it should, and you need to know what happened. What do we do with that? I've said in conversation with many of you that if there's no specific God, and by specific, I mean one who can be known, whose will can be known. Um, If there's no specific God, and in fact, I would go beyond that to say if there's not a judgmental God that exerts specific penalties for sin, then we don't have a lot to stand on when it comes to injustice. Um, What would be the options? We could If there's no God to uphold our case, if there's no God to follow through, then we have to fight back or, gosh, just give up because, shoot, it doesn't really matter. And it just never ends. So what of it? Or tell me, is the loving God that we want to preach okay with that smirking cop's knee suffocating his child, George Floyd? The God of Psalm 1, the God of the Bible, cares. And by cares, I don't mean he goes, oh dear, let's talk. I mean, he's incensed and he will act. His axe is at the root. His knee is on the neck of the wicked. And it's only a matter of time before he snuffs them out. And are you uncomfortable with that God? We should be. Derek Chauvin should be. He will face him. God knows the truth. God sees the unvideotaped truths. Many who have been killed will reign with him. Many who execute injustice will pay with eternal fire and weeping and anxious gnashing of teeth. Doesn't it sound appropriate in this case? Those terrifying words 
Maybe it's more appropriate than we often feel. And those who escape his wrath, as John said earlier in his prayer, will only do so because the wrath was poured out on Jesus. And so there is no, you know, kind of like, well, Jesus died for my sins, so I'm, I'm okay, I'm good. I, I don't really need to worry about it. That's, that's not how it feels. That's not the sense that we get when, his, when the wrath of God that is supposed to be aimed at us um, is poured out on Jesus. It's the most unfair, humble to the dust, ridiculous proposition um, that, that our guilt, anyone's guilt, would be poured out on an innocent man. It's ridiculous in relation to me and to you because guess what? Derek Chauvin is not just the, the problem here and it's not just the other three officers. We are a part of the problem. As, as many are saying, and it's really hard to hear, but this is a system we all live with and work within and accept day after day. And we only you know, say something when the most grotesque version of it happens to get videotaped for nine minutes. We're a part of the problem. And the only, the only way the only way that we will get the grace of God is to know deep down in our soul that we don't deserve it and live in such a way to show that it is unfair and that we ought to be snuffed out. And that the only thing that's holding us from that type of punishment is the grace of God. There's a, a prayer by John Piper in which he prays for the salvation of the officer. And I'll tell you, I was uncomfortable with that portion of the prayer because it seems like it just doesn't fit the wrath that ought to follow this act and it doesn't. And the truth is it's same, the same is true for us. His grace does not fit. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. We don't deserve it. It is a ridiculous gift that he would justify sinners like me. It's not an easy grace to have. It is one that has to be poured out on an innocent sufferer. It is not a get out of jail free card or something that can make you feel better to face your life. It doesn't excuse or minimize any of our sin. It exposes it. That cross exposes our sin for as dark as it is. Now, I don't say this alone. There's a man who knows how the legal system works. There's a man who knows the sting of what this officer did, George Floyd's pastor, Patrick Angulo. He's a bivocational inner city pastor and lawyer in Houston. I'm quoting him here from Christianity Today. It says, Pastor Angulo is still trying to process the news, but one theme he keeps coming back to is the shedding of innocent blood. After Cain's superiority and animosity drove him to kill Abel, scripture tells us the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Then George's pastor says, if you fast forward 2000 years, there's an innocent sufferer whose blood spoke of better things than Abel's. Jesus's blood says he can redeem us through dark and perilous times. I have hope. He said, because just like Abel is a Christ figure, I see my brother, who he called Big Floyd, as a Christ figure as well. 
pointing us to a greater reality. God hears us. He hears his cry, even from the ground now. Vengeance will either happen on the cross or will happen on judgment day. See, Psalm 1 is insistent that this life is a precursor to eternity, that there is a judgment day that will come in which God finishes what he started. The psalmist knows that it doesn't always look like the righteous will win, and he acknowledges that by pointing forward into eternity, into a day where we stand before God, our creator, in which God destroys evil, in which he vindicates the innocent, and in which all of us who are not innocent look upon Christ and have to either, you know, confess that we have received him and that our innocence comes by his innocence alone or confront the fact that we have rejected him and we are guilty of everything that we've done. Christ pays in his own bloody suffering for the sins of those who will weep over their sin and cling only to the cross for their redemption. Therefore, as the Psalm says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked will perish. God will act. This is the conviction that fueled the most effective waves of the nonviolent civil rights movement. God will uphold our righteous cause. Evil will be defeated. In fact, I, the protester, will expose your evil in case you might be willing to confront it and be devastated by it and turn from it and be ashamed of yourselves. God knows about George Floyd. I believe from what I've heard from his pastor, he has prepared a place for him and is even now preparing a case against his killer, as should the authorities who answer to God. And this can shape the way we respond to this. We should be angry. And in our anger, we should not sin because as Romans 12, 19 says, we, we leave room for the wrath of God why? Because the Lord says, vengeance is mine. Our God is committed to it. In your micro churches, how does it concern you that God knows your way? He knows the motives, even of our hearts. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the law or the teachings of God in the Old Testament, and he drives it down to the deepest intentions of our hearts that if we even call one another fools, it's if we're as if it is as if we murder one another in our hearts. When we look lustfully at someone, it is if, as if we commit adultery with that person. How does it concern you that God knows your way? Perhaps in light of what's happened in our in our nation, you'd like to take this moment to consider how you let racism go on, or how you post about it on social media to justify yourself, and then you move on, or how you devalue life in some other way. Maybe it's abortion or blindly supporting unjust war. But I don't want to take away from this very important cultural moment. Ask those hard questions. God knows my way. What's the truth in my heart concerning these issues? And then how does it console you that God will end the way of the wicked? Finally, reflect, do you need or do you see your need for the same cross as a killer? 
Not all killers receive mercy through the cross. But if you don't see that you need a killer's cross, you won't realize that you could become one. You won't realize that you're as guilty as one and you won't have the humility to fight injustice. You'll go into this kind of stuff proud and arrogant or you'll just kind of think it has nothing to do with you. Worse, you wouldn't be able to see the depths of what the cross means for you, which is central to being a Christian. The cross says that our guilt is as deep as the police officer who sat on the back of the neck of an innocent man, that we deserve a death penalty because of the ways that we neglect and crucify our savior, turn our backs on our God, and we don't love our neighbors. We don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love our neighbor as ourself. You need to see that you need a killer's cross. Reflect on that. Can you see it? Pray with me. Father, it's, it's a dark time. I don't know what it was about this video. Well, I do. It was nine minutes of sustained evil that we had to see. The truth is it happens so much more. God, I hate that to be confronted with this, a man had to die. God, I pray that this psalm and its encouragements to meditate on the law of the Lord, its encouragements to consider that there is a group of people who are called the righteous because they have been justified by shed blood, which means that they are guilty and have been cleared by a suffering God who takes our sin, that that would matter to us deeply. I pray that it would matter to us that we ought to be categorized with the wicked, though we are not in Christ. I pray that it would matter to us that there is injustice that is harming and deeply devastating communities all around us, and that we would fight against it because we are convinced that you care and that we would be fueled forward to fight because we are convinced that you will finish the job, that vengeance is yours. I pray that we would not be ashamed of your wrath and your judgment because it is exactly what downtrodden people need. But I pray that we would also magnify your grace and that we would preach it and believe it and not use it as an excuse, but that we would be humbled to the dust and thankful and we would give our lives to love one another. I pray that our church and that the people of God would be like those trees that stand by rivers, that stand out, that are healthy, that give shelter to others, that bless others, that are noticeably more vibrant and alive and different. And I pray that you would do so and make us so by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.